0: Hello, and welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. I'll be your host tonight, Janelle Apps-Ramsey, filling in for Ryan Miller, who, by the way, had a brand new baby girl. So make sure that you send him your congratulations. Tonight on episode 10, we'll be talking about unpacking your white privilege. This is a really great topic, one that you're going to find invigorates the people around the table and is something that there will be some disagreement on and also that opens the door to kind of new understandings about the way the world works. One thing I would recommend is that you take a moment and go look up an article called White Privilege Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack by Peggy McIntosh. In this article, you'll see that there's a 50-point list in which she talks about different examples of what it means to experience white privilege. And so in that list, what's really fascinating is that you can find things that you would have never thought of, that maybe you've never experienced, or things that really stick out to you and bring home the idea of what white privilege means. So I'd encourage you to just take a few minutes before finishing the podcast to bring that up on your computer and give it a look. As we move forward, we will be talking about it on question number two, so you'll get a good sense of what's there, but the real power is reading the list in its entirety. Another thing I'd like to do before we get started is to take a moment to thank for Mantra Brewing here in Denver. They were really generous tonight and provided us with two beers, actually, for Brew Theology. One of those is the Redolent, a Belgian Blonde, uh, with an 8.2%. The other is a Maristem Russian Imperial Stout that comes in at 10%. This stout is a pretty amazing fall beer with flavors of dark chocolate, espresso, maple, vanilla, and hints of tobacco. If you live in the Denver area, I want to encourage you to visit them at South Evans next to DU. And we want to give a shout out to Brennan and Spencer, the co-owners, and thank you for your generosity and support and your belief that brew theology can make a difference. Before we head into the podcast tonight, I just wanted to take a moment to talk about what I love most about it. And for me, in brew theology, it's the people. We have all kinds of people that meet around the table every week. And those people bring different experiences, different ages, genders, traditions, cultures. And that's what makes these conversations so powerful and so meaningful. Just this week, as I was leading a remix... What I had around the table was a great mix of of people. I had Disciples of Christ, ex-Nazarenes, atheists and agnostics, an evangelical Christian. And so that group made for a great discussion. There was a little bit of disagreement on how we interpret this and what that means, but that makes it come alive as we're able to wrestle with how does the issue of white privilege affect our lives and how does it impact the world that we all live in each day? So, I think that you'll find when you lead this issue of white privilege in your town that you're going to get some new information, some new insights, and new perspectives. And I encourage you to consider doing this topic once your group is up and running. Thank you for joining us and have a great day. Welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. I'll be your host tonight. My name is Janelle Apps Ramsey, and I'm Ryan's co director of Brew Theology. Tonight with me are four of my friends, and we're going to be talking about checking our white privilege. Just so you know, uh, we are all white in this room and see, so we are coming from a limited perspective, but we really hope that you'll enjoy the conversation anyway. Um, Tonight we are so thankful for, for Mantra Brewing at Southeast Evans next to DU, and Brennan and Spencer have really voted for Brew Theology and the work that we're doing by providing tonight the Redolent and the maristem Brews for us to partake of while we're here. So we just want to say thank you to them. And finally, before we get started, we have amazing news. We have a new baby Miller.
1: Miss Anna joined us (laughs) last
0: week, and she's five days old today. And she's beautiful and wonderful. And we're so thankful for her healthy birth and for mom being healthy as well. If you know Ryan, please make sure to holler out to him on the Brew Theology page or at one of his um, connecting points, uh, either on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, and let him know congratulations. So as we get started tonight, I'd like to have my friends introduce themselves. They'll tell you their names and a little bit about them, and then they'll also share, because this is something we do at my tables, um, their favorite fall food as the leaves are turning and things are getting cold here in Denver. So let's get started. Um, let's start with Nina.
1: My name is Nina Coor. Um I'm from Michigan, and I grew up in a con- moderately conservative evangelical church. Um, and since then, I have come to a place of not being entirely sure where I fit, but knowing that I really do love Jesus. Um, I am drinking the Redolent from per Mantra and I like soup. That's my favorite soup. fall food. <laughs> Just soup. Yeah. I
0: soup. I need all the soup. <laughs> soup is the best in the fall. <laughs> so.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. Um, my name is Alex. I grew up uh, similarly um, in a moderately conservative evangelical context. Um, got out of that... Uh, relatively quickly and went to college in Portland to get away culturally from everything that I had known and loved. Um, and then uh, just have had eight wonderful years of deconstructing and reconstructing uh, what I believe based on kind of the things that are thrown at me. Um, so, long story short, uh, I still consider myself Christian. Um very Jesus-centered Christian, and I am trying to kind of see how to rescue Jesus from some of the cultural things that uh, are claimed in his honor, that are not honorable. (laughs) Uh, I'm drinking the Maristem Russian Imperial Stout at 10% ABV tonight, so it should be toasty this evening. (laughs) And your favorite fall food? Oh, yeah. Um. I actually enjoy eating pumpkin, like actual roasted pumpkin. Mm -hmm. That's really good. That
3: sounds good. You can't really get it any other time. That's right. That's true. All right. I'm Baird Ramsey and uh, started out in the United Methodist Church. uh, Spent almost 20 years in the Nazarene Church and uh, then now in. Still friendly in the Christian category, but uh, moving rapidly away from the evangelical world um, and trying to put all of the pieces together. Uh, It's nice to see the broader perspective. Uh, As to favorite fall food, um, I was going to say pumpkin pie, but as you mentioned that, then acorn squash with some maple in it also sounds... Really good, so I'm looking forward to both, and we'll we'll see which one I get first.
0: And like I said, I'm Janelle. Uh, Baird happens to be my husband, if you didn't figure that out, and uh, we both uh, spent a lot of time in the Church of the Nazarene uh, working towards ministry. Uh, We moved to Colorado, and things have kind of changed. Uh, I would label myself a progressive Christian. We attend currently an ELCA church, and I uh, help host a house church in my home. And tonight I'm drinking the Maristone because I love stouts. They're amazing. And my favorite fall food, mm, I've got to go with pumpkin anything, really, too. <laughs>
2: are
0: also does that fancy. include pumpkin spice? It does to some extent. Okay. Um, and, and not not to, to bash for Matro, but uh, Breckenridge right now has this amazing chocolate, stout, coffee, pumpkin spice, nitro Ooh. in a can that is... Amazing. So
1: I'm glad you said that because I was about to out you
0: for having pumpkin spice beer in the kitchen. Yes, I do. It is delicious. It's awesome. It's a guilty pleasure. It really is. It's so good.
3: And then there's me sitting over here. I didn't mention what I'm drinking because I'm in the other brew theology camp of uh, a good cup of tea. Mm
0: -hmm. It's good, too. Part of our family of brew (laughs) theologians. Everyone is welcome at the table, and we're glad to have them. So tonight we're going to talk about white privilege, and this may be something you've heard about in the news, or maybe it's something you know a lot about, Um, but we're going to share with you right now a portion of our curriculum, so you can kind of hear what we're starting from, and then we'll start with our questions and uh, let you listen in on our conversation tonight.
2: Our national history has perpetuated a social reality that favors white-skinned, among other traits, but we'll stick with race for this week white-skinned persons towards economic, political, and social advantage, while by design keeping this preferential treatment hidden from those in which it advantages. Examples range from the overt, such as the history of redlining in the housing market, to the hidden, such as the ability to be around people of your own race for the majority of your social experiences. Think about work, play, church, school, etc. Peggy McIntosh,
0: one of the primary resources for understanding my privilege, summarizes it in two quotes. Quote one, as a white person, I realized that I had been taught about racism as something which puts others at a disadvantage, but have been taught not to see one of its corollary aspects, white privilege, which puts me at an advantage. I think whites are carefully taught not to recognize white privilege. I have come to see white privilege as an invisible knapsack of unearned assets, which I can count on cashing in each day, but about which I was meant to remain oblivious."
3: Second quote, one factor seems clear about all of the interlocking oppressions. They take both active forms, which we can see, and embedded forms, which as members of the dominant group, one is taught to recognize racism only in the individual acts of meanness by members of my group, never in the invisible systems conferring unsought racial dominance on my group from birth.
1: Racism, in her mind, is both the overt and the embedded forms of discrimination. White privilege falls into the embedded category. It is hidden, two steps removed from the immediate reality, and therefore difficult to see without guidance. While it is safe to assume most people are against overt racism, think KKK, Aryan Brotherhood, etc., we cannot even begin the conversation about embedded institutional racism, learned racism, conditioned racism, etc., racism, until we begin to unpack our own stories and own privilege, or lack thereof, and place ourselves in the larger narrative of our nation's great sin that is white supremacy.
2: So what does this have to do with theology? It can, and should, be argued that our history of Christian theology holds a great responsibility for the injustices of our nation. Slavery, Jim Crow segregation, opposition to mixed marriage, all at one point were condoned theologically and in some circles, still so today. Furthermore, other religions have and sometimes still do hold interpretations of faith that promote superiority of one group over another. Think of the caste system in India and uh, warring factions of Islam just as a small example.
0: One can also look to religious traditions as champions of racial equality. For instance, liberation theology in the Christian traditions, shout out to Andy Millman for our last topic, Muslim-American solidarity with Black Lives Matter, and pushes in the Buddhist traditions to work toward inclusivity. Furthermore, some prophetic literature addresses both overt inequality and embedded inequality, particularly the book of Micah and Amos in the Judeo-Christian traditions. As Broderick Greer stated on Twitter, in the Bible, it's never called social justice because the prophets always assume that justice isn't a private affair. So when we gather around the table at Pub Theology, we always have some ground rules. Number one, no is allowed. No one person or viewpoint gets the last word. Number two, respect all others and their viewpoints. Number three, extend courtesy by listening well. And finally, everything is up for discussion. And so we honor that in our podcast as well uh, when we meet together. So we're going to get started on white privilege. And number one, the first question is, Do you agree that white privilege exists? What about the idea that it is by design hidden from those advantages? Have you uncovered instances of hidden white privilege? Do any of these ideas make you uncomfortable? So really, um, let's just start with do do we all agree around the table that white privilege exists?
1: Yes.
2: Yes, but you would be surprised how many people don't. Or maybe you wouldn't be surprised. But, um... It is often a contentious topic in conversation, um, which I think if you have embedded yourself in learning about these things, you wouldn't think it would be contentious. You would think it would be um, a given, and that is certainly not the case.
0: Well, I think we even saw that in the vice presidential debate where we saw resistance to the idea of implicit bias that, oh, that's not real. People aren't really like that. Um, This this, uh, topic kind of falls in that same category for a lot of people, Mm -hmm. and they feel like this isn't a real thing. Um, And so, around this table, we agree that it's a real thing. Uh, What about the idea that it is by design hidden from those who it advantages?
3: I think, among other things, in talking about whether or not it exists, um, I'd like to go back to what you just said, Part of the problem is the cardinal sin uh, in our day and age. One of them is being racist, mm-hmm. and none of us want to be racist. It's it's not acceptable, and yet at the at the same time, any time that we talk about this this topic, we are in some way saying that there is racism, and in some way, I am part of responsible for or benefiting from an action that I personally would never choose to do. Right. Yeah. And so I think that speaks to why this is such a hard topic. Um, and I, I am probably a late to the realization that this is there for that kind of very reason. I, I do not do racist things. I have gone out of my way not to be racist and yeah, as you start to look at it more deeply, it is there's another layer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's easier for people to accept the reality of extremes because most people don't consider themselves extreme. Mm-hmm. And so it's easier to talk about racism because you can sort of other it. Like, yes, it exists, and yes, it's a problem, and yes, it's a pity, but... I'm not that, and so we can talk about it in sort of this safety bubble of not being involved where something that's implicit or subconscious or whatever you want to call it, is, it, it hits nerves I think. It, it touches people where they actually are rather than this giant social issue that I am above.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, speaking of that, where have we uncovered instances of hidden white privilege in our own lives?
2: Oh, every day. Like, every day. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I I think as soon as you kind of begin to be aware of some of these things, they pop up and you... Yeah. I mean, we probably perseverate on a lot of them once you're in the conversation, but even as simple as, like, not being followed in a supermarket or, a, yeah. like, a department store because of your skin color or going to a church that is all white people or all, um, you know, has a very minimal, uh, presence of people of color. It's just a, I don't think about those things unless I'm prompted to.
0: Yeah. I had never really thought about those things at all. And we worked with a Hispanic youth group in Kansas city and took them to a shopping area one time and went into a candy store and pretty soon noticed that the clerk was watching our kids really, really closely. And, um, Mm -hmm. they came out and they told us about it and we had noticed it, but not like as intensely, but they felt very targeted by that. And I think that was, that was one time when I was really aware of like, they didn't care that I was in the store, but they, and they didn't care that I was in charge of this group of kids, even though I was white, what they cared about was having Brown kids in their store. And that was not okay.
2: Yeah, but, I mean, if you're never with right. um, kids in a store, you're never going to know that somebody treats somebody else differently. Yeah. Um, which, I, I mean, I think that kind of leads into the idea that it is a, a hidden social construct mm-hmm. that we existed, particularly hidden from me, because I wouldn't, I would just expect that this is how everybody is treated. Um... Mm-hmm. You know, it's until you start to hear stories from other people or you engage with other people and you see these things in action. Um, But at that point, then you there are some people that would just maybe attribute it to individual racism and not to a system of, you know, this happens habitually and on a pattern over and over and over again. Um, So, yeah, I think I'm learning more and more about how it's been hidden from me and it's devastating. Yeah. The effects of it are just
0: insane. Well, I really tune in with what you said about I expect people to be treated a certain way and then to find out that, that especially people of color, they don't have any expectations like that because that isn't how they're treated. And, and until you see it and experience it, it can be a very other type of thing. Um, but once you see it, you can't really unsee it. I was
1: thinking that in terms of where have I uncovered instances Um, because I don't have very clear specific stories of times that what was hidden about my privilege was uncovered but I was thinking in terms of when I walk into somewhere new or when I go to a different country or when I travel or I'm in the airport because I'm a white woman from America I think people approach me or communicate with me or assume about me that I am Wealthy, safe, trustworthy—like there's this set of assumptions that I think people interact with me. They, they they come to me with that I could not be any of those things, but because the way I look, and not even yeah. that anything I can control, just the color of my skin,
0: mm-hmm.
1: they they're coming to me with those assumptions. And so, reading through some of this stuff and starting to think about it and trying to notice it in the world, I think. Really, anyone of color, <laughs> they're starting with a whole different package of assumptions. Yeah. When, when people interact with them.
0: Yeah, and go ahead, Vera. I was gonna say, I,
3: as a way to ground this out for, if you're really skeptical about this, um, maybe I can I can bring up two versions of inside the white community variations of this. Um, And it is the same principle that is a fact, except that the impacts are much more severe. I work in tech. And um, as such, when people find out where I am employed, I have a certain level of respect and a certain level of knowledge that is attributed to me Whether I have it or not, just because I am perceived to be one of these really smart, nerdy people, and that can vary from I'm going to fix your computer to other assumptions about what I know and how much credit I receive for the information that I communicate. Whether I'm right or not, people assume that I have more knowledge. Um, A second example of that uh, that's a little different but similar is being involved in ministry. Uh, People uh, ascribe to pastors or have traditionally ascribed to pastors a certain reverence. Um, And that is it is kind of that automatic ascription of traits to someone with a given status. For us as white people, that is in general positive. Now, it varies. Um, And yet, at the same time, we ascribe traditionally a number of negative impressions to people from different racial traditions, and each of those ends up serving as a roadblock or a setback to their ability to function.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, and we're, we're going to dive right into that next. Um, if you haven't had the opportunity, I would encourage you to go do a search for uh, an article titled White Privilege Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack by Peggy McIntosh. And in this article, you'll find a list of things that are daily effects of white privilege. And I do want to give a shout out here to Alex. He put together this curriculum that we're working on tonight and provided this list for us and I think it's a phenomenal example um, to help us understand what's going on. So since we can't really take time to read all 50 items to you, I've asked each person to pick out one or two things that they feel really speak to them and discuss that um, to give you examples of how this white privilege might play out in our daily lives. So, do I have a volunteer to go first?
1: Yes, yes, I will go
0: first. <laughs> Can I throw something
2: in real quick? I sure. the The example of your workplace is a very good allegory to explaining white privilege. I, I haven't, I hadn't heard it presented that way, but I thought that was really, um, you know. Depending on, like, once you learn somebody's occupational status, you automatically throw this set of assumptions on top of them, good or bad. Um, and it's it's kind of the same with somebody's race. It's just a, they're a little bit more ingrained in, yeah. you know, we were taught to do them since we were one years old. Um, so yeah, I thought that was a great example. I've heard that before.
0: And the, the examples we're going to talk about now are, are other similar things that, you know, you're like, oh, that's not really a thing, but actually, it is something that we get to take for granted because we're white. So, Nina, did you want to start us out?
1: Sure. Yeah. There's a lot on here that I, I thought were very profound. Um, but the one I'll start with is it's number 18. If you do look up this article, um, and it says, I can swear or dress in secondhand clothes or not answer letters or emails that's a lot or of texts. <laughs> I cannot answer texts. Without having people attribute these choices to my bad morals or the poverty or illiteracy of my race, so basically I can do more or less whatever I want as long as it's within legal parameters, and no one is gonna say, "Oh, it's because she's white."
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: I uh, so the one I identify with is opposite of that. Um, when I don't know which one it is on here, uh, but when I do something that that garners, uh, praise or admiration, I'm not, it's never, my race is never mentioned. I'm never, uh, pointed out as being a credit to the white race or the white people or anything like that. Um, it's, it's purely individual. Like you did something good. Um, you know, you get this award, whatever it might be. And, yeah, I, I don't have to speak up for or represent my entire race. So I thought I, that was just yeah, fascinating. Yeah,
0: we, we had a, a professor at our table last week and she mentioned uh, the kind of the correlation of that one with becoming a professor that has tenure. But if you're a woman, well, this is to meet guidelines. Or if you're of a different uh, cultural background, well, this is to meet our guidelines. It doesn't have anything to do with all the work that all of us have to do if we're pursuing masters or doctoral degrees and all of the effort that goes into that, it's then attributed to whatever category you're in, um, which is really, really unfair. And so mine is kind of silly. Um, I actually really like 39 because this has been a big part of my life for a long time. I can be late to a meeting or event or whatever without having the lateness reflect on my race. Now, people might think I'm a little flaky or that I, um, you know, don't plan ahead enough, but it's never attributed to the fact that I'm a white girl. And so I just think that it's so interesting that something that simple and basic that's a part of each of us in our daily lives, whether we're on time or not, is something that you would hold against someone because of their race. Um, So I thought that was an interesting inclusion on that list. Baird, did you have one that jumped out to you? Oh, I have several. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, I've been doing a lot of reading on this topic, and and I think in that two stand out. One of them is, uh, I can turn on the television or open the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely represented. Um, I was actually reading an article uh, earlier today that was talking about tech, Um, and it's a study out that is looking at the lack of people of color uh, in tech, and one of the things that they say is the few people that you see in tech are white people with glasses, and if you aren't a white person wearing glasses, what are you doing in that field? Uh, If people do not have role models that they can see, if they do not have examples in front of them, the research says it is harder for them to identify or imagine themselves in that role. And the cost of that is that we lose great talent. And so that one is standing out. Um, And then uh, a second one uh, that is also kind of scary uh, I can be sure, this is number 41, if you're following along, I can be sure that if I need legal or medical help, my race will not work against me. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And the recent research coming out on medicines and medical treatment and stuff is just flat out scary that if you are not white male, uh, the outcomes are going to be significantly different and no one's bothered to do the research to know why.
2: Yeah. Um. I'm sitting in on a uh, uh, class right now, and it's about health disparities, and we talked about, um, you know, all sorts of social determinants for health outcomes and stuff like that. But it's fascinating the amount of um, disparity there is with prescription, prescribing, prescribing um, painkillers to people in chronic pain, uh, and the differences between people of color and white people and that people of colors pain even if it is like on a an objective scale equal um it's they're they're often prescribed less uh like lower dosages and less amount of the time if that makes sense wow. um hmm. yeah and so there i mean hmm. the the numbers to some of this stuff is incredible and so there's somebody in our uh, in our local Denver Publiology group, that posted an article in our discussion um, that basically goes through like hundreds of just like quantitative examples of all of this, uh, and it's fascinating. Like it's hours and hours of reading, um, but it puts to it puts to numbers all the stuff that we're talking about, and it's insane.
0: Yeah,
1: I think it's incredible that all of those numbers exist. And I guess we're sitting around the table right now with four people who've studied sociology academically in a college setting. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we're a little bit biased in that <laughs>
3: way. I <like. laughs>
1: but I think the fact that the numbers are overwhelmingly demonstrating that this is real, um, it's amazing how many people are still able to deny it.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I was actually going to ask you guys um, I've run into circumstances. Basically, since I've been thinking about this more, um, run into circumstances or relationships where people um, just straight up don't believe this and are offended by it. And I was wondering if any of you guys had any similar experiences or any, like, good ways to engage in conversation. Not necessarily to change their mind, but I also think this is something that it's important to talk yeah, about. So definitely. Um,
0: well, I definitely um, have experienced this in terms of gender um, and in being a female preacher, there would be people that would come to me and would just discount me on it, on my face because I'm a female minister and would believe that there's no right for me to do that. And And the way this relates is that the only way that I can really impact that person is if they're willing to hear me and watch me and see me do the thing. Because when I it doesn't matter if I give them a speech that would win me a Nobel Prize, a sermon that you could just like cash in. Um, if I performed better than every other pastor they'd ever met, it doesn't matter. But it's when they get to wit- that, the argumentation of that, that, well, watch, or I can do this better. I can, you know, if I come at it with that position, they won't accept it. But it's by being in relationship with people and just continuing to do the work and do it well and um, practice it, that then that opens the door to conversation where then we can talk about why this is an issue. And I think that applies here too, to some extent, there will be people that will just walk away from this um, that either feel that it doesn't exist or they don't have time to worry about it. But I think that where we have an in is when they show even the smallest amount of interest, that's when we can walk through that door mm-hmm. and start having these conversations and giving examples and you know talking about things in life that maybe we both shared where we've seen this. Um, unfortunately, we don't live in a culture that forces us to believe one thing, which I think is good. Um, Not but,
1: unfortunate. That's, it. It. that's <laughs> but,
0: good. But it also means that when people choose to ignore discrimination, which is essentially what this is, um, then there's... I can't force them to believe it. Right.
1: I found that similar things in talking... Even in last week, with when this topic was posted, and I was reading the, um, the articles before we met at the pub, um, I found that as I was talking to people, the women I was talking to had a much more positive and favorable and accepting response than the men. And I think it was because... As women, well, and to be honest, millennial women living in Denver, <laughs> um, we are are pretty aware of gender bias in things, and we feel it in some way. And so, um, so I think that that might be an in to talking to people about this, especially those who are, who are who are kind of hardline, like this isn't real, and it's just making a big deal out of nothing, and those sort of arguments. Um, it's helpful to then talk about, oh, well, what, where have you felt discriminated against and what are other other sort of unconscious biases in, in our culture? And then you can sort of tie it back because if, if you can identify personally with some sort of discrimination, then it, it's yeah. sort of easier to say, oh, well, I suppose that could also apply elsewhere. And so I think I found that that was sort of how people responded as I was talking about it. And it has helped me, identify with some of this in a way that I won't ever identify as a white person. But if I think about it in terms of gender, then I I sort of could understand how that would feel.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I think the other thing that we have to do sometimes, even though it's super uncomfortable, is when we're witnessing this, or when it's really apparent in front of us that there's this discontinuity, we, we have to say something. And that may mean... We may upset a friend or make someone upset, angry, or, or make it, the mood in the room shift a little to the awkward. But the only way that this kind of thing changes is when we're willing to speak it. And, yeah. um, you know, for example, you know, we use the word ally often in terms of LGBTQ, but in terms of gender also, I mean, female, male gender, Women need men to be allies in terms of equality. We can't do it without them. And I don't necessarily like that all the time, but it is true. And the same applies in terms of white privilege and racism. We must be allies. And sometimes that means we speak up to other white people. And sometimes that means we give our black, brown, other friends the opportunity to speak in a place where they might not be able to speak. Yeah, Yeah.
3: For for me, um, I I guess I have come to this idea late. Yet um, it, it it has always been to me um, something that that was talked about in terms of people's individual moral responsibility, uh, people's individual work ethic, people people's choices, whatever whatever way you wanted to explain, and an argument that whatever stereotypes we have of a given group, they're stereotypes that they have in some way earned. Um, and I don't I don't even know exactly what tipped tip me over the line to, to look at that and say that that's an in, incomplete narrative, um, but one of the things that I have I have run into recently in some of the reading I've been doing is uh, the idea of of back talk um, that anyone that brings up the idea uh, of white privilege or or brings up systemic racism or implicit bias uh, is participating in a countercultural message. Um, I'm trying to remember the author this came from. I think it's from a, a book called White Like Me. Um, but uh, anyway, there, there's this idea of talk, And we want to suppress that narrative. And we want to suppress the possibility of that narrative because that's what allows these things in the Invisible Knapsack to remain invisible. Um, on the flip side, I saw a really powerful YouTube video, um, and it's basically, they have a, a bunch of different people line up in a line in a room.
2: It's the privilege walk? Or the, it, yeah.
3: And, and yeah, I'll tell about it.
2: Well, no, I, I just now became familiar with this activity, so.
3: So, they basically then proceed to call out, um, have you benefited from this? Have you been hindered by that? And... Some of them are general things. Some of them uh, very much take out people of a given gender uh, or take people out because of um, uh, LGBTQ status or whatever. And you end up you either take a step forward or a step backwards if you've benefited or been harmed by it. And very quickly, the people start spreading out throughout the room. And it's just it's truly depressing uh, as as you look at it and you realize that these things are not just things that these people have done but they they are they are things that are happening to people that prevent them from being able to have the same opportunities yeah um,
1: it's almost it reminds me of a threshold so. I remember—I don't remember which class it was, but it was in one of my psychology classes in college. We talked about thresholds for mental illness and how people aren't necessarily born with, with a mental illness or with a gene that makes them ill in some way, but there's a threshold that everybody has, and your, your genes and your background do affect where that threshold is. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of like these unconscious biases or privileges or whatever – sort of move that threshold around without you really knowing it. So then yeah. you're starting from a, a, a line or a starting line that's way behind if you're a minority or if you're a person of color, where where we're starting as white people. Um, lost my train of thought, but it's like <laughs> that.
0: <laughs> well, I think one example is, is the com, the comic that you've seen drawn where you have a classroom and the, the white kids in the front row and the black kids in the back row, and you have to try to throw a piece of paper into the trash can, um, you're automatically disadvantaged because of some of these things. And those kind of um, simple examples, though, help us put a framework around what's going on here. Yeah. And I think one of the things that can happen when we are um, encountering privilege is that we can get a sense of shame around our own identity And we have a tendency to become defensive in order to protect our own concept of reality. How can we learn about white privilege in our own lives without becoming defensive or writing off our white privilege as something else? Or even, let's go so far as, say, getting bound up in shame because we realize all of the advantages that we have.
2: So this is
0: a concept that's
2: super interesting to me uh, because I identify with it so well Um, because I grew up. You know, the history books and the teachers and the social setting glorified the civil rights movement as the solution to racial tension in our country. And so I grew up in this post-racial, what I thought was post-racial existence where everybody was treated equally and where you were in life was like purely dependent on how you acted and your skills and and everybody was on this equal playing field. Um, And then I started learning about different you know different cultural experiences or different racial experiences and um particularly through some academic experiences um but that whole like house of cards crumbles down and so like I kind of had to come to terms with like oh I've lived a lie about how I've thought about the world for the last 20 years Mm -hmm. um and how do I interact with that and how do I come to terms with that and then um you know seeing the white privilege that I've experienced experienced stack up on top of my back like there's a there I don't know if shame is the right thing but but it is um, it kind of becomes personal at that point yeah and but yeah I, I think that a lot of people identify with this like kind of gut punch to their reality because people my age at least, racism was taught to us that it was a thing of the past it did not exist anymore. And, you know, MLK was like raised to this saint level of being this like peaceful, you know, peacemaker. And, um, that's not how he was. That's not the situation we're living in and, uh, coming to terms with that reality is very, yeah, kind of retro world and you can very easily pull away from it and just completely, Disregard it, and it's so much easier to do
0: that yeah one one way i've experienced this kind of in the inverse is coming out of uh, a more conservative tradition as a woman i um i always assumed that i had not quite measured up because i never made it all the way into full-time ministry and as i started doing this reading about almost exactly a year ago I realized very quickly that I was I was experiencing gender discrimination through some of these unconscious systems, and it has been life rattling um, to realize that I have been part of that system, that I have been um, someone that people have looked to and gone, well, I you know maybe if I just try harder or I do better or I am more modest or I'm quieter, maybe I'll make it um and the truth is is that there are systemic biases in the system i came out of that mean that unless you meet a certain mold and have certain aspects you're probably not going to be chosen and that has nothing to do with my performance and i think i mean i, I really think that's a critical aspect here because on both both directions that when and, and relates to what Baird was just saying about it being the personal, try hard, do your best. There are so many things that are against people in many of these categories that they're already starting at a deficit. So it doesn't matter if they're as smart as Einstein with all the people skills in the world. They may not make it. Right. Um, and the same goes for us. Just because we were told we were gifted and talented and always elevated to the front of the class and made to be the most popular – doesn't mean that we're really that far ahead and i think that that reality calls us to acknowledge that we're all human that we all have to meet each other in the same place and we have to try as best we can to rip down those assumptions both positive and negative and meet people face to face and move forward from there um and i think that's that's the best way that i avoid kind of the utter depression that can come yeah. with some of this yeah. and, and feelings. If I'm being honest, some of those feelings of like, Hey, look where I am. No, like it doesn't have a whole lot to do with me sometimes. Right. And so being able to just come and meet people one-on-one is sometimes the best thing I can do.
1: As we're talking about this, um, it seems like it, what it's reminding me of is, is sort of the stages of grief and what counselors and therapists and researchers have talked about in terms of dealing with grief. Because Alex, you're right. It is sort of like a a sucker punch when, when you sort of recognize sometimes gradually and sometimes all at once how privileged we are as, as white people. Or if you're listening to this and you're not, uh, privileged white person, and you, you feel the the flip side of this, um, yeah. and are, are, are hearing somebody acknowledge it for the first time, I don't know. Um, I think it's right, it's important to give yourself grace. And Brené Brown has a lot of really good stuff about shame. Yeah. Um, and a lot of it is recognizing that it's grief. And it's, it's not like, you're going to go through the stages, you're going to be angry, you're going to barter, you're going to be in denial, you're going to eventually accept it. But I think Recognizing it as a transition, which by its nature requires grieving and letting yourself kind of go through those moves without without expecting to to have a firm grip on it. Yeah. Or just just bust through the the stages in order. (laughs) Because grief doesn't work like that as much as we try. It doesn't work like that. So recognizing this as a big transition and letting your your mind and heart and and life sort of do the nebulous grieving process i think will be really important for us to be able to come through on the other side as individuals who are secure and confident and and gracious and compassionate in these issues um because we can't just move from not not knowing about it at all to all of a sudden being another martin luther king jr like there's so many things that need to happen Even within ourselves, to recognize what we can do
3: in our own lives. I I think along those lines, one thing that um, is coming to mind. A number of the points in the invisible knapsack talk about uh, variations of the. I'm going to lose my train of thought just like that. (laughs) Um, But uh, I should really just look back at the list. It seems to me that the the challenge to avoiding white guilt, um, which is, uh, of course, one of the buzzwords that, that everyone is saying, that all of this is just talk to make us experience white guilt, um, is to realize that at one level, these are all systemic things in our culture. They're not... They're not things that I have set up. They're not things that I have directly done, although they are things I contribute to because I'm not aware of them. Yeah. Um, but as a group of white people sitting around a microphone here, <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the realities is that, and this goes back to the knapsack, I can structure my life in such a way that I don't have to interact with people that are different from me on a regular basis but it's beyond that in my case it isn't that i don't have to it's that my life has been structured in a way that i don't have to because the functionally this is not quite true but functionally the only people of color that i interact with are some support staff at the office right um and and it's not that anyone is set out to do that we are actively trying to recruit to change that but there's no one to recruit from Mm -hmm. and more needs to be done to address that more needs to be done to address the pipeline fully aware of that we need to find ways to bypass the pipeline fully aware of that um but i i can't be guilty for the fact that that is the reality that i'm in because it's not a reality that i'm choosing on the flip side um There are also ideas like uh, something that comes out of Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy. Uh, He talks about the importance of choosing to structure our lives in ways that if we care about this topic, we get proximate with the lives of people who are not in our own category, which is itself difficult, which is not going and, oh, I went to one church service at a black church. Right.
0: Um,
3: <laughs> right. I, 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 we yeah. did that as a school trip. It, you know, okay, uh, it was interesting. I
0: volunteered but. at the food kitchen, so I got this figured out.
2: Right.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, so I think like there were a lot of protests that were happening in Denver, partic- particularly around um, when some of the Mike Brown case, when the verdicts were announced and stuff like that, um, and I. It was almost like I wanted to go to these protests to appease my feelings of guilt or my understanding of the situation, and so I um, I didn't end up going because it seemed selfish to go to make myself feel better, mm-hmm. does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yep. And so I, I don't really know how that relates to what you just said, I really enjoyed what you just said. but. <laughs> But that made me think
3: well, no, I think that's I think that's dead on the right response to it. On the one hand, I can't I can't resolve my white guilt by one action. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't know if this is correct or not. But I would I would almost say my white guilt isn't necessarily my personal guilt. It, it right. is partially systemic. It it yeah. is partially mine. When I choose or fail to take actions, uh, when I when I talk over the woman in the room, or when I whatever, then I am directly contributing to it. Or if I if I discount a person of color, uh, you know, so help us if if we're uh, there was an incident apparently on an airplane uh, this last week where a, a black doctor was not allowed to treat a patient who was having distress on the plane, and basically that, no, you're not a doctor, type. Oh,
0: my God. Um, yeah.
3: Um, so there are things like that where, yeah, yeah that's just straight up on you. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but there are other ones of these that are that are very much not – they're not direct – and the art of being an ally is realizing it and giving up your moment's talk, which is really ironic, sitting here on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, or finding ways to be involved with people where you can support them or whatever. And yeah. and it's finding that balance, I think, that lets us be productive about it. Yeah. Um, guilt is rarely productive. Right.
0: And and one of the ways the next question, I'm going to kind of run through this, but talks about how we learn about our right privilege. And you've heard a couple of books mentioned here, the article that Alex uh, brought up. And so I just want to encourage you all to find those things and go read them and struggle through them and um, work on this. That's how one of the ways you'll do that um, to figure out what is this all about. And um, we'll try to put some of those connections on the podcast when we post it. Another thing, if you are Christian, um, one organization that does a ton of work in this is Christian Community Development Association, the CCDA. They have, uh, they usually have an annual meeting that you can go to the conference, but they also do have regional offices and they deal with racial equality, but they also partner with and and expect uh, white privileged Americans to be part of what they do. And so if you really want to like encounter this in a a new way, uh, go check out CCDA and see what they have there. Our last question is about, from a theological perspective, where in your tradition or non-tradition do you see instances of racism overt and embedded? What about instances where racism is openly challenged? What is our role in these traditions? And are we helping to perpetuate racism or helping to address it? And I'm actually going to um, take the lead on this one just because I was listening to Baird and Alex um, and even even Nina what, talking about grief and guilt. One of the things that I think we're called to do as uh, white people that are allies is to, to lament.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, we mm-hmm. must lament. We must go to those dark places And grieve and apologize and lament and cry out to God for justice. Um, And if we're not doing that, then we are not doing part of what we are called to do as the privileged class. Um, And lamenting in itself does not solve this problem, but by lamenting and encouraging others to lament and own this sorrow, because because we're all part of the system, means that then the system must respond to our grief. Um, And so that's a tradition that I would highly recommend if you are in any sort of leadership uh, in any sort of church or group or gathering or synagogue or temple, how do we lament the discrimination that we have seen in our world around us? Yeah.
3: I haven't had time to look into it, but um, even maybe going so far as um, uh, Brian Stevenson makes an argument that we should seriously consider truth and reconciliation um, as part of our response to the legacy of of racism, um, to the way that we came by the land that we live in, uh, by the way that we have treated uh, First Peoples, and um I I haven't had time to look into it, but I think there's I think there's an idea there that's at least worth thinking about. Yeah. Um I guess I guess my answer to the to the question of, of where we are. Um I've been involved in church communities that do take this seriously and are working to address race. Um, and I've seen that done somewhat effectively, and I've seen it done really poorly. Um, I guess I have mixed feelings about congregations that want to set up uh, systems to support having ethnic congregations uh, is more where I've seen I. Yeah, race is, is so multifaceted. I very rarely do I see addressing uh, black-white relations. Very, very much more so we see addressing new immigrant populations. Um, but what I've what I've seen there is is even systems that push separate but equal. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's good when it works. It's good when the church is reaching out and providing English education for new immigrants. It's good when we're doing some of these things, but it's it's fundamentally bad um, that it is is so intractably difficult to get a truly diverse congregation.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think that that's often a yeah, well, we could get into the multicultural church in an entirely different podcast. Yes, <laughs> um, but I so I think the one thing that I have found to be really important in this, um, in terms of approaching it from a theological perspective, but also just learning more about our situation and our white privilege, is um, to talk about it with other white people. Um, and that kind of sounds counterintuitive, but there's uh, there's a lot of re re traumatization that can happen with, uh, if you're talking to somebody who has experienced overt racism or like a, just a really tough experience with white privilege, um, learning from them can just re traumatize their, their circumstances. And, um, I think the act of engaging in lament and like Janelle was saying, which is a really, really good uh, point. And, but of engaging in that and then discussing with a like community, um, particularly when you have some education and some context to it, uh, I think can be a really healing thing. Um, that one isn't re-traumatizing uh, the people who are trying to prevent trauma from being imparted upon them. Um, but it also is not, um, I mean, black people at some point, I'm sure are sick of being asked about all the crappy situations that they've been a part of. Uh, and so that's, that's, a I think an important thing to think about when you, when we go about and set into the world to talk about these things. So,
0: well, this has been a great conversation. I just wanted to uh, open the door. Does anybody have any last thoughts about. Uh, white privilege and how we fight racism uh, as we move forward together. I thought we weren't allowed to have a last word. Yeah, there (laughs) isn't. Oh, see, I'm not allowed to say it that way. All right. Well, did any of you learn anything new tonight that you didn't know before? (laughs) Yes. I think Baird had a great example about
2: work. I think that's Mm -hmm. that's good to contextualize it that way for conversation
0: for sure. Definitely. Thanks. All right. Well, I want to thank Baird, Nina, and Alex for joining me tonight. And we want to th- thank for Mantra for this amazing beer. And I loved my Mary stem. That was great. And uh, we just want to encourage you to find us on Facebook at brew theology at Twitter at brew underscore theology on Facebook and Instagram at brew theology. And then you can find the podcast where all podcasts are found iTunes, Stitcher, Radio, Google Play, Pocket Cast, Podbean. Uh, Those will all be right there. And finally, just uh, to, if you hear little bells while we were talking, that would be the Siamese that never comes out when there are strangers in my house. I feel so privileged. Alex, you're like family (laughs) (laughs) now. And so that little interruption is his fault. And we also want to give a shout out to Tiberius, who sat quietly and did not jump on the table and interrupt the microphone? So, thank you so much for join, joining us at Brew Theology, and we look forward to talking with you next time. Peace. Peace. Cheers.